If you have your scriptures with you this morning, uh, open them to Romans chapter 6. We're going to continue our, our walk through this survey of Romans. I call it a survey because uh, we're not getting down into the weeds too much, but I'm trying to give you an overview of the book of Romans. We're using a paraphrase, which is called the New Living Translation. Uh, it's one that is uh, not a not an, an word-for-word translation. It's a really pretty loose translation, but it's very well done. And so I'm checking it with other translations and even with the original uh, Greek to make sure that uh, what we are preaching to you is, is accurate and good. Um, so let's read God's Word, Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. Well then, since God's grace has sent us, set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have been giving you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligations to do right. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and righteous living that result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the Word of God. In going through this uh, book of Romans, I told you it's notoriously hard to outline, and it really is. However, if you go up into the uh, upper levels of the atmosphere and look down on the book as a whole in a larger context, you start to see patterns that the Apostle Paul is using. And although he doesn't always stick with it religiously because he's, he's uh, reciting his words, he's like preaching a sermon and he's got his scribes there and they're translating for it or they're uh, uh, taking down the, the words... And uh, sometimes they use different words. They don't use exactly the same word he said because that was a job of a scribe. But th- that's a whole nother, whole nother topic. But Paul does use a pattern. He starts out saying, humankind has brought the world to be what it is today. Now, people love to blame God, whether they're believers or unbelievers. They say, why? They have this anger, this angst against God, uh, whatever they believe God to be, why did God make the world the way He is? 
And I mean, my goodness, open your Bible, read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You don't have to read any further. You don't want to. You find out in, verse th- in chapter 3 why the world is the way it is. We make the world the way th- that it is. God's not down here with an a- AK-47 killing people. It's us that do that. We chose to sin. Humankind chose to do that. And there's lots of questions associated with why that happened. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, says that's, that's the million-dollar question. Why did Adam and Eve, who had no compulsion whatsoever to sin, and were created, they weren't perfect, but they were created perfectly. There's a difference. Adam and Eve were not perfect. They were perfectly made. And that's something you should think about. Because we kind of think of mythology. We think that they were, you know, he stepped out of uh, GQ magazine and she stepped out of Vogue and they were a beautiful white couple and, you know, they lived in this uh, Hawaiian uh, paradise. And I mean, it's just crazy. And we mythologize the Scripture rather than reading it for what it is. They were two human beings, much different than anyone in this room. And so they chose, but they were in some mysterious way, we don't know all of it, but we know parts of it, they somehow communicated this sin to the rest of humankind. And we've been doing it ever since. Nobody born, except for Jesus himself, has ever gotten up to an age where they understood right and wrong, and they said, I'm just going to do everything right and not sin. How do you account for that? Don't blame Adam and Eve because the Apostle Paul didn't blame Adam and Eve. He said, this is on us. They they committed their sin. Their sin brought death. Death passed to all men and women. But we are responsible, he says, for our own sin. So as you look around and you say, why is the world the way it is? Why are people the way they are? Now he's getting closer. He said in chapter 2 and 3, even the religious people are this way. Even the religious who have the law, they should, be, they should know better. No, we keep sinning. Look around. We know the law. We suppress the truth. We replace it with a lie. We love it and we give ourselves to it. And worst of all, We justify ourselves. Well, He made me this way. He caused me to do this. Forget all that. That's nutty. If you want to talk sovereignty, if you want to talk the providence of God and how He's all-powerful and all-knowing, good. We can do that in a theology class and we can bring some powerful arguments to the nature of humanity, anthropological answers, theological answers that will make sense to you. But I'm just talking about in our normal life, we look around, listen folks, it's not hard to see the ravages of sin and death in our everyday life, in our own lives. So Adam's death, or Adam's sin brought death. The Apostle Paul said in chapter 5, he said, Adam's disobedience brought death and sin. You see, he reaches back into the past and brings that narrative from chapter 3 into the New Testament. said this still holds today. This is true now, right now. Adam's sin, his disobedience, brought sin and death. Jesus' obedience, listen, he's, he's intentionally doing this. He's a good rabbi. Let me tell you, this man knew how to teach. 
And so he's, he's using all of the powerful tools that an ancient, classically trained teacher would bring to a class. Adam's sin, Adam's disobedience equals sin and death. Jesus' obedience equals the crushing of sin, the destruction of death at the cost of his own life. You see what he's doing? He's setting up parallels. First Adam, second Adam. Here's what the first one did. Here's what the second one did. And the second one is going to generate by new birth, by being born again, regeneration, and new humanity. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. It is absolutely fascinating. So put on your uh, thinking hats and let's get going. In 521, he says, So just as sin, listen, just as sin ruled over all people and brought death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving right standing with God, which results in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the end of chapter 5. Then he starts chapter 6. Here's the high altitude. 6, through, six 1 through 14, he talks about the power of sin in the life of the believer. If you and I are trusting him, that sin's power is broken. Now, you, the obvious question, well, wow, if sin's power is broken, broken why do I keep on sinning? What is the problem? I want to do right, but I can't do right. In the inner man, I want to do this and that. The outer man, he's doing something else. The outer woman, we're doing something else. There's this conflict inside, and there's terrible theology associated with that. You know, there's two wolves or two dogs arguing, one white, one black, and they're they're going at it. Whoever you feed the most is going to be the stronger one. That's Greek dichotomy that doesn't exist in the Bible. There's no such thing. What Paul is saying is, sin is still present. Its penalty has been dealt with. We looked at that in the earlier chapters, chapter 3 particularly. Uh, Paul says that Jesus was offered up as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. He didn't just show up and say, "Ali, ali, oxen free," and give everybody three, you know, three free sins. No, he died at the cost of our sins. His blood was the cost, and so the penalty for sin is broken. The power of sin is broken because we've been united with Him in chapter 6, 1 through 14. We've been baptized. Whatever way you've been baptized. Presbyterians get a really bad rap for saying, you know, we're so narrow, we're so yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're this and that. Believe me, if you want to join this church and you've been baptized Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, any brand of Protestantism, we will accept that. But go to some of our other sister churches and try to do that. And they'll say, no, you can't come to communion unless you're baptized Roman Catholic. I know because my wife was Roman Catholic. You can't go to communion in the Orthodox Church. Don't even dare because you haven't been baptized in the Orthodox Church. And there's a lot of brothers and sisters out there in the Baptists and other churches. Uh, Lutheran, I was denied communion in a Lutheran church. Very conservative Lutheran church because I wasn't a Lutheran. You come here and we accept 
your baptism. Because we've all, it's one of the places where the, we serve the Lord's Supper, we lay down our arms, our knives, we put them away. And at baptism, we lay down our arms and we accept those that have been baptized, whether it's an adult, a child, whatever. So you're in a church that is very uh, winsomely welcome, strongly, profoundly welcoming to people. Because we've been united to Christ. We didn't do it. The church, the, the Presbyterian church in America is a great denomination. I love being in it. But it's not the one who makes all these things communicable to you and I. It is the Holy Spirit that does that through the power of Jesus Christ under the authority of the Father. When will we ever learn? But Paul is a wise rabbi and he knows that once you mention grace, everybody sees a free ticket to sin. Oh boy, it's grace. We don't have to obey any rules anymore. You know, we're like Pinocchio and his buddy that go into, uh, what was the name of that? Nobody knows, right? We don't read those. Those are terrible. Uh, anyway, they go into the amusement park. You remember and they become donkeys? Never mind. I'm the only pagan in this church that reads Pinocchio. <laughs> God help us. So I guess nobody's been watching Breaking Bad again for the 15th time, except me. Yeah. All right. He says the power of sin is broken. So he, he opens chapter 6 with, shall we go on sinning? Shall we persist, remain habitually in sin? We, shall we make no break with sin so grace abounds more and more? Should we just go willing? Ah, I'm free, I'm free, I can do whatever. Meganetoi. Meganetoi. Sorry for the pronunciation. Meganetoi. May it never be. Don't even think about it is what he's saying. No, never. Absolutely not. If we and he asks the rhetorical question, which is what we're going to talk about now. If we've died to sin, how can we live in it? He's asking you to ask yourself that question. If we've died to it, how can we live in it? He's telling us it's impossible. If you've died to sin, how can you live in it? Well, what does he mean by living in it? Here's, here's Tim Keller. I think he nails it. To live in probably means something like to swim in it or to breathe its air or to tolerate it or make no progress. Listen, Paul is not saying Christians cannot commit individual sins. We all do that. He's not even saying that you cannot struggle with perhaps habitual sins. Sins that just plague you your whole life that you're always they're always present and you're always dealing with them. It's always frustrating. He's not saying that. That they're just gone. Poof. What he is saying is that you cannot go on abiding and remaining in the realm of sin deliberately. Listen, with no distaste or no diminishment. In other words, if, if, if somehow, you know, I don't know... When I sin, I can only speak for myself. When I sin, I know I sin. I'm very cognizant of it. And I resist it sometimes. I say, you know what, I, 
I want to hold on to this for a few minutes because I kind of like it. It feels good. feels good to be angry. feels good to look down on other people. It feels good to have pride over all of my accomplishments. It's good to do. You know, I, I, want to, I want to pull that together and hold on to it for a moment. But my goodness, folks, the Holy Spirit, I mean, in me, He starts to make me feel uncomfortable and I'm squirming and my jeans are too tight and I'm like, you know. And that's what he's talking about. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you know what I'm saying. Now, you may, you may sin ignorantly and then come to church or somebody tells you, hey, that's not right, and you go, why? And they say, well, you know, and they give you a scripture or they say something to you, they counsel you, help you. Then you understand and you go on and God will start working in your life. So what is going on? What am I saying? What does the Apostle Paul say? I'm not saying anything. I'm telling you what he says, but... What is he saying? If the power of sin is broken, why do we struggle with sin? Why can the world look at Christians and say, man, they are such a bunch of hypocrites? Well, first of all, they're right. That's a requirement, by the way, to become a Christian. I'm a hypocrite. I know. I was blind. I was leprous. I was deaf. I was hateful, mean, I was a drunkard, whatever the case may be. I was prideful. I was a hypocrite. But now I see. Now I hear. Now I look at my leprous skin and it's clean. Now you're talking. Now you're talking Christianity. It's not about hypocrisy, folks. We, uh, we should look around the world and say, man, there are lots of better people than me. In fact, almost anybody is better than me. If we really, if we really know ourselves, that doesn't mean that you, you get you know, morbidly introspective, but what it does mean is, you, like the Puritans used to say, take an inner look. Look inside. Look rightly. Look with the Scriptures. And this is what Paul is doing. He is reaching into the Old Testament, drawing up all that wisdom, and then he's putting it into a Christian context because his king came. His king has come. Messiah has come. Kingdom of God exists and rules now, today, in this world. In his church, the church is the agent for that great message of the gospel that the king has come. So what is going on? 15 through 23 talks about slavery to sin. Or, you would think he would go jump from slavery right to freedom. No. You would think if he's going to make a contrast with slavery, he would have said, freedom. And that's not the case. Listen, America. Freedom is not the greatest good. Slavery to righteousness is the greatest good. That is the greatest good. Freedom is not the greatest. Freedom, if you want to push it all the way back to Genesis 3, freedom is our enemy. And freedom only works if you have wise and benevolent leaders who are kind and filled with the Holy Spirit like the like King David, and for a brief period, King Solomon. And after that, no more. That was it. 
And as R.C. Sproul famously said about the United States and America, we are running, this is way, we're running on the fumes of a group of Christians, deists, and a few moralists. We're running on the fumes. And when those fumes run out, statism. And you can believe it. And we think in this room, we think it's going to come from the left and all, you know, Joe Biden doesn't know one end of a gun from the other. The danger is going to come from hard right people who are angry and violent and vicious and ready to put anybody that disagrees with them in jail. Now, if you want to come and yell at me after church, fine. I'm leaving right away. And I'm not going to stay around for that. I'm not talking about gun rights and any of that stuff. Listen, folks, there is a spirit of evil that abides and has always been here. And if we don't learn to recognize it in the church, how in the world are we going to help the people out there? The people among us. You can't. You just become an empty, another person complaining and whining about how hard things are. Okay. Enough. Have I been on my soapbox long enough, Dawson? Yeah. Look at verse 15 and 16. Here, here he's talking about free. It's not freedom that you're looking for. What you're looking for is slavery to righteousness. A different kind of slavery. And he makes it so beautiful, so clear. Freedom will come with that slavery. In fact, it is, it is freedom. But it's not just Going from slavery, jumping to freedom. It's jumping from slavery to a different kind of slavery to a different master. Look at 15 and 16. Since God's grace has set us free, there you go, free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not, he says. He repeats verse 1. Meganoito. Do you not realize? He's asking a rhetorical question. Do you not realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey, a slave to sin which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God which leads to righteous living. You see, I already told you that you, if you trust in Him, you are free not to sin. You have new life in you. You have Holy Spirit in you. You have all the tools of Scripture at your disposal. You can face sin and look at it and fight back. And when you fall, you repent and believe the Gospel. Both things are good. Your obedience is good. Your repentance is good. Your new obedience, all of it is good. Trust me, go forward. In freedom. My freedom. Not that freedom. Or not just willy-nilly freedom like Adam and Eve tried to get. They didn't get freedom. They got slavery to sin. The word doulos, the word slave in Greek, many of you have probably heard this. Doulos is the word for servant, for slave. And it is the most abject, degrading word, the most servile term for a slave in all of the Greek language. You can't find anybody lower. The doulos was the bottom. And one of the definitions is this. There, there's several definitions, but they all kind of get back to this one. I picked this one to give you. One whose will is swallowed up 
in the will of another. One whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. You see, a doulos did not have a will of their own or a life of their own or anything. If the, the master's sitting in his seat and he crooks his finger like this, you better be watching or you're going to get knocked down. You better know when he says this so that you can run over there and say, what do you want? Well, I want you to do this. It could be anything. Any degrading, any servile, any, any horrific thing that you can imagine. Their will was not their own. They're swallowed up. This commentator said they're swallowed up in the will of Satan. This is the world that Adam and Eve stepped into. A world where their will was servile to a demon. And anybody in this room that has struggled with sin and addiction, I mean, some of you have grown up in a good home and good life and you've been good all your life. That's dangerous too. But some of you have been down in the depths and you know what it is to be down there. And it's dark and there's just no way out and you wonder, how am I going to get out? I know I'm captive. How do I get out? That's what our parents opted for. And that's sadly, folks, what we opt for. The older I get, the more I see that I'm opting for it, not getting away from it. And I'm not opting for it in some of the things you think about. I opt for it in the sins of pride, arrogance, hubris, things like that. Insecurity over money now that I'm older. You know, insecurity over my health, you name it. Those are, those are legitimate. Yeah, they all exist, but... Why should I be afraid? I have a lot of years where God has never failed me. And I'm speaking in the, you know, I'm self-referential, but I'm trying to reach into your life as well so that you can see that this fear, these sins that we, that we massage and take so much care for, they just lead to slavery. St. Augustine wrote, a magnificent. I, I hurt my brain this weekend reading, or this week reading it. Uh, but he wrote uh, a piece, and, then, and in it he talks about the four states of humanity. Let me give you these because I think they're so helpful. I always talk about them in my theology class. So if you, if you all have not, if you've been in there, it's a review. If you've not been in there, then listen closely because these are brilliant. The, Augustine was. Amazing. Listen, the four states. The first one, he said, is able not to sin or able to sin. Able to sin, the ability to sin, and secondly, the ability not to sin. Okay? That was posse pacare, possible to sin, posse non pacare possible not to sin. This was a state of innocence that Adam and Eve lived in before they took from the tree. A state of innocence. They had the ability to sin. They did not have the choice to sin. God said, no tree. No tree of knowledge of good and evil. No. That's the only no, He said. That's the no they chose. (laughs) 
And you know what? If you were, take, if you were put in a garden like that and everything, you know, if that, things were like that, you would do it too. That's just who we are, right? You can't have that. You can have one chocolate chip cookie, but not two. And what is the first thing you want? Two, three, four, five. (laughs) We don't even stop it, two. All right. Pulsing on the state of innocence. After they sinned, they were not able not to sin. Now, what he meant by this, and this is brilliant, listen carefully because this will help you. It's not that they sinned all the time everything they did, but that in everything they did, there was a capacity and a presence of sin. Presence of sin. Penalty gone, power gone, penalty remains. Okay? So, not able not to sin. Non posse non peccari. This is the state after the fall. And this is the state that humanity exists in today. Even now, when we sin, there's always, when, we do, when we're doing, even when we're doing right, when we're doing absolutely right, there's still underneath there, somewhere hidden, the smell of sin. Maybe very small. There's some good, good people in this world. But it's still there. We can't get rid of it. Then there's a third state he talks about, and this is able not to sin, posse non peccari, which was in the garden. You see, it's possible not to sin. This is a state of the regenerate and reformed believer. So the Christian is brought into a state because of the new birth and the Holy Spirit abiding in us. We, it is possible for us not to sin. What he's saying is, you're, you're not under the slavery of sin anymore. You're under the slavery of righteousness. You're still a slave. But now it's to a new master. Okay? And the fourth state, of course, is unable to sin. Non posse peccare. And that is the state of glorification or consummation. Can't, can't wait till that day comes. So what uh, one theologian from Birmingham Theological Seminary, Jim Maples, put it this way. Man passed from a state of posse non mori, okay, possible not to die, to a state of non posse non mori. Not possible not to die. This, th- those few categories there are just brilliant and answer so many questions about humanity. Very quickly, Adam and Eve were not created immortal. They were not like, uh, you know, uh, elves in Lord of the Rings. Well, and they weren't even immortal. They were not immortal. They were mortal. And death was promised to them if they ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But there was another tree in the garden. We don't even know if they ever ate from that tree, but it was called the tree of life. And so when you find that tree, in the book of Proverbs, you find that tree, you find the knowledge of God in that tree. The knowledge of righteousness. So theologians have speculated that to, to remain alive the way they were originally created, they would just eat from that tree. It was a lot of symbolism. It wasn't about the nutrition in the tree. It was about what the tree represented. It was about coming to God in His promise, 
trusting that promise, trusting Him, and then who knows how long they would have lived. We don't know. And we shouldn't speculate. So, you know, speculation. So look at verse 17. Thank God, he says, once you were slaves, past tense, but now you wholeheartedly obey the teaching we have given. Now, when a Christian reads that, they go, gosh, I wish that was me. It is you. For goodness sakes, listen to me, your pastor. I'm way smarter than you are. No. Look. Listen to me. Listen to the Apostle Paul. You were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey the teaching we have given. What is that teaching? For goodness sakes, Christians. It is that Jesus Christ is King, that He have, has come, that He's removed the penalty for your sin. He's removed the power of that sin. Trust Him. When you mess up, trust Him. It's not all about you. It's about Him and what He has done, not what He's requiring from you. Wholeheartedly means you just run to Him with all your might and grab onto Him and say, I messed up, what do I do now? And He will wrap His arms around you, protect you, maybe correct you a little bit, spank you on the bottom and say, you know what, that was dumb. Or it may be more serious. I've, listen, I've gotten a good licking from the Lord before. I'm old enough that I have had several, actually more than I want you to know. But there's never been a time when He has poured out any, not a drop of His wrath on me. It's always been corrective love. It's always been embracing. It's always been come here. And folks, if you're not experiencing that, you need to come talk to Dawson or me. Because you can have that. And you should. should not live as a slave to sin. Because even though He sets you free, you can still act like a slave and be thinking like a slave to sin instead of a slave to righteousness. And Jesus is King of righteousness. So now in Him you find freedom. The only way to do this, folks, is that, that thing I drew on the board, you know, the circle of repentance, faith, new obedience. That gospel renewal cycle is pure gold. And if you haven't seen it, I'll draw it for you. I love drawing it. You can ask anybody. Making that circle, isn't that right, Dave? It's impressive, isn't it? I, I can make a round circle with my back turned to the board, right? They've all seen me do it a hundred times. <laughs> Thomas Chalmers, from his magnificent sermon, please read it. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, it's online, you can look it up. No wonder, he's talking about Christians that live in the slavery of sin. Listen to what he says, it just says... No wonder they feel the work of the New Testament to be beyond their strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of stuff. So long as they hold to the words of the New Testament to be beneath their attention. They're not listening to the gospel. Neither do they nor anyone else. No one is able to dispossess the heart of an old affection. You can't just root Get into your heart and start uprooting all this bad stuff. You can't do it. Some of you have tried. You've spent your life trying to do it. I've spent a good part of my life trying to do it. When I found this out, I wept for two days. 
Neither they nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection, but by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection, listen, if that new affection be the love of God, neither they nor anyone else can be made to entertain it, but on such a representation of the deity as shall draw the heart of the sinner towards Him. He's saying you can't do it unless you are moving to Christ. If you're just focused on your sins, and I've got to get these sins, I've got to get rid of them all, I'm never going to be pure, I'm never going to have, I'm under the bondage, and you're just working and digging and digging, you're digging, you're digging your own grave. Look up. Look to the one who died for you on a wicked, filthy cross by wicked, filthy men whom he prayed for, by wicked religious leaders who convicted him, by wicked governments that used their power to execute. Look up to the gospel of this great God, our King. The gospel, he goes on, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the expulsive power. It expels every lesser treasure. It awakens, I love this, it awakens a new appetite, a new affection, a new sense, a new taste, a new longing in the heart that nothing but Jesus can fill. And that longing, that delight in Christ expels every rival. You see, in the throne room of God behind the temple, nobody was permitted. And Jesus tore that temple apart, that that, uh, curtain apart in the temple, and said, come to me. He didn't say, go clean up, then come to me. He said, come to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You can be my slave. Now you're free from slavery. Look at 18. You're free from slavery to sin. You become slaves to righteousness. In other words, your will is swallowed up in His will. That's something to rejoice about. Because of the weakness of human nature, 19, him, I'm using this illustration. So what Paul is saying is that who you are determines what you do, not what you do. That's no gospel. That is a, horrific. Oh, what I do is who I am. No, that's the world's way of doing things. Who you are determines what you do. And who you are is a slave to righteousness not a slave to sin. You have a new life. And I think that's where, folks, I I really believe, honestly, as your pastor, I'm telling you, I think that's why Christianity can feel so burdensome. Is we want to we want to be black or white. We want to say, well, I, I just got to take care of my sin, or I want to go to grace and 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 throw all my clothes off, get naked and 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 jump around like I'm free to do whatever I want. It's neither of those. Neither of those. 
It's not the prodigal son and it's not the elder brother that stayed behind. It's not either one and it's nowhere in between. It's up above and up there Jesus the great king is judging them and everybody else on the continuum. Get off the continuum. It's exhausting. You're trying to find balance on a, tit, on a deck that's always shifting. And Richard Pratt says balance is only momentary synchronicity. You just aren't going to find it. You've got to get off. You've got to become so Christ-oriented, laying hold of Him. Like Thomas Chalmers, I mean, this guy, hundreds of years ago, smart guy, Presbyterian. Well, I think he was yeah, Presbyterian. Well, at least he was Scottish. Look at 20 and 21. When you were slaves, you were free from the obligation to do what is right. What a horrific thing. You were free from doing right. Then this famous verse. Everybody knows this one because we love this. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, sin is hard work. Let me tell you. You think it's easy, but if you're honest and you look at it, it is hard work. You've got to work hard to sin. It's exhausting. Sin is exhausting. It leaves us hollowed out. I have never, ever met anyone who in an honest conversation have told me that they love their sin, that they're comfortable with it, and they just... Even people that have fully... They've kind of changed their mind about something really bad and they've embraced something that's sinful, that we know is sinful, with all their heart. Underneath, and I've talked to them, underneath they're being nagged and nagged and nagged, not by God, not by Jesus Christ. They're being eaten from the inside out by their sin. And death is creeping and they wonder, what, what am I going to do with this? Well, I'll just make it legal. Honestly, go ahead. Make it legal. And see if that gnawing goes away. It won't. Sin is like a vampire that sucks the life out of you. It gives nothing back. It takes and takes and takes. And sin and its 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 primary expression, idolatry, lead to death and the grave, and it's insatiable. In other words, it can never be sin can never be satisfied. You never can get enough of that thing that you're a slave to, and all of you know that. Proverbs chapter 30 says that sin is like a grave. The grave is never satisfied. So listen to this. This is not a true story. This is an anecdote to make a point. And I've used it before, but I love it. And I think it's a really appropriate for today. Abraham Lincoln went to the slave block to buy a slave girl. As the girl looked at the tall, homely-looking white man bidding for her, she figured he was just another white man going to buy her then abuse her. Lincoln won the bid, and as he walked away with his property, 
He said to her, young lady, you are now free. And she said, what? What does that mean? And he said, it means you're free. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? And he said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean I can be whatever I want to be? And Lincoln said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And he said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And then, with tears in her eyes, she said, then I'll go with you. Jesus liberated us so that we could be slaves to righteousness. And the beauty of that slavery is it is absolute freedom for us. Freedom for us not to sin. Freedom for us to obey our Savior. To repent when we do sin. To believe the gospel. To know that He is never, ever holding His nose at you. To know that He loves you. That He never looks on you with displeasure. Why? Because He did look on His treasure with displeasure. Because Jesus was bearing that enormity of sin, carrying it on His own body, the Bible says. In the, on the tree, He carried it. I don't know how it happened. It just, it's just stunning. And we say we're Christians, we wear crosses, we do all this stuff, but folks, listen. He bore this on his own, in His own body so that we could be free. Free to love and serve the risen Savior. Will you trust Him? I pray you will. And obey Him. I pray you will. Father, um, I don't know, sometimes this is too much for us. I think this is why the book of Romans has transformed so many lives. Even people that uh, don't believe read this book because of its incredible philosophical and theological content. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would burn these things into our heart. Please open us and fill us with your Spirit. Help us to understand. Help us to live in and to revel in the freedom of grace. Not so that we can sin more, but so that we can obey and serve our Lord where there is true joy and real fulfillment. So as we come to your table, Father, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith, that we might leave this place nourished and strong to face another six days in the presence of sin, but also as free men and women. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, by your grace.